0: This week, during outdoor adventures around County Cork, I passed through the little village of Ballinspittle. I paused at the famous Grotto, a shrine to the Virgin Mary. She was looking solemn and holy, as usual, and was clearly on her best behaviour on that particular day. Not a peep out of her, really. No moving, no rocking, and definitely no levitation. Nothing strange at all. And yet, back in the summer of 1985, this very spot was the locus for one of Ireland's strangest manifestations of the paranormal, an event that straddled the worlds of the Fortean and the religious. The entire affair was nothing less than the symbolic subconscious rumblings of a deeply Catholic society that was on the verge of great change and modernisation. One could even interpret the extraordinary events of 1985 as being the last psychic gasp of old-school Catholic Ireland. Who knows, but I happen to know that within this tale of a local miracle that went nationwide, there are definitely lessons to be learned about the nature of belief itself. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Keen, and I'm safely back at the cabin in the woods uh, following my recent travels. Now, here in the cabin I've got stacks of old tapes, mostly old episodes from previous shows and other creative efforts, I've got a tape from my old show, Strange Ireland, about this topic specifically. The episode currently has no online home, so I'm going to dust it off and give you a listen. Now, this episode is originally from 2017, so the style may be slightly different to more recent episodes, but I think you'll enjoy it. And for this episode, I'm enjoying an Inch Donny Blonde Ale from Clonacilty Brewing, which was the nearest brewery I could find to Ballon Spittle itself. Grab yourself a drink if you'd like, as we get stuck into this episode from the vaults: the miracle of 1985, Ireland's moving statues. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object.
1: You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in
0: a body. Well, in this episode, I'm going to be covering the story of the moving statue of Ballen Spittel. Now, this case is somewhat different from other kinds of anomalous phenomena, as it has a clearly religious component, and also because it didn't happen to a single witness on a dark road, as is often the case with these things. Instead, it happened repeatedly in front of huge numbers of people. I'm going to get started with a couple of personal anecdotes to set the scene. This may help to explain my own take on the Ballen Spittel phenomena, Or it could just be an excuse for me to tell a story. You'll have to decide yourself. So, some years ago, I worked at an outdoor centre in the American Midwest in a remote northern region just a few hours' drive from the Canadian border. School groups came and stayed with us for about a week at a time, and they did various outdoor activities with us during their stay. The winters were long and dark, and we were at least a half-hour's drive from the nearest small town. Like I said, it was remote, We kept the school groups busy even in winter. They would ski and snowshoe, ice fishing, that sort of thing, with the kids and the teachers and a few parents would come along as well uh, just to help out. Anyway, one cold snowy week I was working with a particular school group and on one day I was checking up on a few things in their accommodation building when one parent and several girls from the school group came back inside, having just finished up one of their classes. Now as soon as she came into the dorm building, the parent wrinkled her nose and announced that she could smell gas. I didn't smell anything myself, but my nose was pretty blocked up at that time of year, so that in itself didn't mean too much. I took the group on a little tour of the building to try to identify what was causing the smell. The young girl said they smelled it too. The mom was pretty precise about where she thought it was localised. She smelled it downstairs but not upstairs, on one side of the building but not the other. More parents and more kids came into the building as their classes had also come to an end. Soon there was a group of moms and girls who were all rather concerned about what they presumed was a natural gas leak. Though they all said it didn't quite smell like natural gas. It was apparently somewhat sweeter than that. We now had about 25 people who had reported the smell. So I called a supervisor and explained the situation. When she arrived, she too announced that she could smell the gas. So I called the maintenance guy. Now, when he arrived, his initial thought was that perhaps there had been a problem with the sewage system, which could sometimes create a somewhat sweet smell. Although, like me, he didn't smell anything himself. Having removed everybody else from the building just in case, we investigated the various systems that might possibly have caused the smell. In the end, we concluded that there was really no cause, as the building didn't even have natural gas. We let the group back into the building, and they promptly announced that the smell was gone. Later, I asked the maintenance guy what he thought had really happened. Being rather an interesting, multifaceted kind of guy who'd studied psychology at college, he asked me if I'd ever heard of a book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by one Charles McKay. Now, as it happened, I'd read some of this book years earlier, but it hadn't popped into my head for some time. Though rather old, being published in 1841 and written in an archaic style that makes it difficult reading today this book remains one of the most important volumes on what we now call mass hysteria. McKay covers such happenings and beliefs as alchemy, the crusades, and economic bubbles, and uses ideas from group psychology to attempt to explain them. The maintenance guy's mention of this book caused me to re-evaluate what had just happened as a psychological incident and not simply a physical one. The more I replay the timeline of the gas incident in my head, the more it became clear that besides the mom who initially reported the smell, nobody else involved independently reported the smell without it first being suggested to them by someone else. The mom had mentioned it to the first group of kids, and as subsequent groups of people entered the building, these initial witnesses stood outside the front of the building and asked newcomers if they smelled gas as they entered, putting the notion in their heads before they went inside. I was astonished at how efficiently and how quickly this meme Passed from person to person and became accepted as truth. Contemporary writing on mass hysteria notes that examples frequently occur when a group of people are placed together in an isolated environment, often a single sex environment, in which emotions are heightened, for example, a group of teenagers on a school trip. The literature is replete with examples that take place in remote boarding schools or convents, and the gas anecdote I witnessed certainly fits into this pattern. A recent example of mass hysteria that any listener ought to be familiar with is the outbreak of scary clown sightings that occurred around Halloween 2016, some of which were even reported in my own city of Cork. But that's a story for another day. An older case that perhaps shed more light on my story is the case of the so-called Mad Gasser of Mattoon. This is a 1944 case in which the community of Mattoon, Illinois, came to believe that a mysterious assailant was spraying gas into their houses making them feel nauseous, dizzy and ill. While the mystery was never solved, following extensive investigations it was concluded by authorities that there was no assailant, no gas, and that the smell and the symptoms reported by the victims were due to, that's right, mass hysteria. By the end, the local police became overwhelmed with false alarms as impossible numbers of people reported attacks by the phantom gasser. It seems that once an idea becomes prevalent within a group of people, it can spread quickly, About a year after the gas incident I experienced, I was visiting a friend who worked at another outdoor centre, this one even further north, in an even colder and more remote location. When I arrived, knowing my interest in all things strange, my friend told me of an unusual happening that had just gone down there. A recent school group had showed up at the centre, with the girls travelling on one bus and the boys travelling on the other. Now, the girls' bus had had an accident. On entering the centre grounds, the vehicle spun on some ice and turned over on its side. Nobody was hurt, but understandably, everyone inside was pretty shaken. The school authorities who were on the trip, including the principal and the school social worker, spent the first few days of the trip working with the girls, making sure that they were all right and nobody was too troubled by the whole thing. It seems likely that the boys, at this point, were feeling a bit left out. Perhaps their need to also be at the centre of a dramatic happening was soon to manifest itself, for in the coming days they would have a story to tell also. One morning during the trip, the boys reported that a strange figure had entered their dorm during the night. They said he was extremely short, perhaps a little person, and was dressed in bright colours. Several boys reported that he had stolen items of their clothing from the bags, The principal and the social worker interviewed the group of boys who had reported this and was impressed by their sincerity. They all swore to what they had seen. And when several more similar incidents were reported from other male dorms, the outdoor centre took action, upgrading the locks on their dorms and even the local sheriff was called in. Now the sheriff, for some reason apparently more experienced in child psychology than the school authorities, interviewed the boys, but he interviewed them separately. Now their stories and their descriptions of the intruder began begun to vary wildly. And upon further questioning, their stories collapsed as, away from the group, each admitted that the story was false. The phantom intruder never returned, but the centre still locks its doors to this day. Perhaps the boys had really believed in the story when they were all together. It's impossible to know. But it certainly seems that a belief shared by a group can take on a life of its own all of which is something of a lengthy preamble to the story of the Ballinspittle Madonna. Ballinspittle is a village in rural County Cork, about 8 kilometres from the nearest big town, Kinsale. In the hot, wet summer of 1985, it briefly became the centre of the world, when an astonishing phenomena took place there. It was a different time. Payphones were big business, penny sweets still cost a penny, and thousands of young people were leaving the country because of economic hardship. Well, maybe not so different to today. One thing that was different, however, was our relationship with the church. We were still a nation that was profoundly Catholic. As the Waterford Whispers once said, the Catholic Church was the rock and roll of Ireland. Just outside the town, by the side of the road, is a Marian grotto, that is, an artificial cave used as a shrine, with a plaster statue of the Virgin Mary perched up high. These are common all over Ireland, as in other Catholic countries, Some more elaborate ones show a depiction of the crucifixion, but most just have herself standing alone, her hands outstretched in a gesture of peace. Most of these were erected in 1954, which the Vatican declared the Marian Year, and many of them were made by the same craftsman who made the very balanced statue, Maurice O'Donnell. Now the image of the Virgin Mary is a somewhat mystical figure, it's fairly unique to Catholicism. This is sometimes known as the Cult of Mary, a phrase that's often used in a derogatory sense by non-Catholics who find the worship of Mary as distinct from God or Jesus as being idolatrous. Protestantism, during the Reformation and after, definitely sought to remove aspects of Christianity that they deemed superstitious, and by and large, they did away with things such as the worship of Mary, stigmata, and the various miracles associated with religious paintings, holy lances, and saints' embalmed penises. I wish I was joking about that one. Now, luckily for me and my podcast, Protestantism did eventually also contribute greatly to the world of mystical thinking, as it was the Protestant tradition that led to such oddities as apocalyptic cults like the South Cotians, various crazy prophets such as Joseph Smith, fervent religious awakenings like the Welch Revival, which came complete with flying balls of light, UFOs and speaking in tongues, and of course, spiritualism, which involved speaking to ghosts by knocking on tables. Which only goes to show that nobody has a monopoly on strange beliefs. But Catholic mysticism has always had a decidedly different flavour. Perhaps Catholics have had more scope to engage in their need for wonder and mystery being allowed to find it, in a wider range of artefacts and things around them. Jesus Toastface, anyone? But quite aside from the likes of monks who could levitate and be in two places at once... Oh, and that's just a 20th century example, Padre Pio, who is still a big name here in Ireland, though that's a story for another day. The biggest name in Catholic strangeness has to be Mary, the Mother of God. It is Mary alone who seems able to return to Earth to visit us in person... The most famous example of this worldwide phenomena was, of course, the Lourdes-France apparition of 1858, followed closely by the Fatima-Portugal appearance in 1917. Now, the only Marian site I've ever been to is the decidedly second-tier Medjugorje site in Bosnia-Herzegovina, where herself appeared in 1981. Her most famous appearance in Ireland was, of course, the Knock, County Mayo sighting of 1879. But, for me, nothing trumps her appearance in the late 20th century in County Cork. Early reports of strange sightings at the Balanced Grotto in January of 1985 were roundly ignored, but things really kicked off in, on the evening of July 22nd. Cathy O'Maney, a volunteer who helped with the upkeep of the grotto, was making her nightly walk past the statue. By her own account, it was shortly after the 9 o'clock news had ended. Her two daughters alongside her, she stopped to pray. What happened next was extraordinary. They looked up in mid-prayer, only to see movement. The statue, high above them in its little cave, came alive. Here she is speaking on BBC Newsnight.
1: We saw different movements. To me, it is as if she was breathing, or lifelike, maybe breathing or sign, chest movements. And the others saw her hands move. A few people more came, so there were 13 of us there on that particular Monday night, the 22nd of July, between 20 to 1. And you all saw it? Yeah, we all saw it. What was your reaction, your first reaction to that? Uh, A sense of peace and protection, that we were being protected. Since that first sighting in July, more than a quarter of a million people have flocked to see Ballinspittle's moving Madonna. They come from as far away as Dublin and Belfast in special coaches laid on for the pilgrimage. Come rain, come wind, come foul weather, every night thousands of people pack the remote country road in front of the statue, their eyes upheld to see a miracle. Look at our head, no. no, our head is the isn't moving now. Yes, Lord, is yeah, her yeah, definitely now, kind of blowing a lot. Now look, many come out of curiosity, more come out of faith. But few go away disappointed. I definitely see it dropping over and and like as if it was going to fall out. I've seen the Pope's face. I've seen a face with a beard, a person with a beard. And I've also seen a head with a ball with no hair and the head turned down, like that. Of every ten who come, seven see something. Even the skeptics go away converted and rare is the local person who would dare admit the manifestation has passed them by. and Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The Hail faithful Hail Mary, of Ballinspittle, God. like Faith Pat Bowen, secretary of the local now. grotto committee, are flattered Mary, that God has chosen them. She God means to spread his message and well, calendar, and so is not the in the slightest doubt that Lord. what they that have experienced the is indeed Lord, a miracle. I think it's a second knock or a second lords. One lady got her hearing back after 33 years. She heard the bells of the Angelus being sung here. And uh, another lady who had the aid of a stick for many, many years saw a lady become alive and she got a shock and she left her stick and she walked away without it. And thanks to the crowds, business in Ballinspittle is booming. After one of the worst tourist seasons in living memory, the bars and shops are doing a trade like they've never seen before. The village centre is chock-a-block with chip vans, and a new word has entered the language, the Grotto Burger. The Madonna, it seems, has brought blessings, both spiritual and material. I think there are more people praying. Husbands have returned to their wives and all that sort of thing of course the local shops and hotels are gaining voice and well it will mean something for everybody
0: interestingly she also said at that time there was talk of statues moving about the country and there was nobody believing anyone and then when it happens to you yourself you think the others must have been telling the truth too You don't believe these things until it happens to you. This seems to indicate that there had been earlier reports in other locations and that the notion of a moving statue was in the ether, as it were. The word spread, and within a few days, visitors from other parts began arriving in the village to see the miracle, in small numbers at first, then more and more. By the end of the summer, it was estimated that that there were as many as 20,000 people showing up every night. National and international news organisations sent reporters to comment on the story, including the BBC and the Wall Street Journal. People set up their own pilgrimages, booking buses and rounding up their friends to make the trip with them. Business boomed in the village, with one enterprising gentleman, the father of an acquaintance of mine, operated a chip van to cater for the crowds. Omani herself, the original witness, interestingly, did not have another vision for six weeks following her initial sighting, even though she was surrounded by crowds of people who were seeing things still. Interestingly, considering how often the media portrayed this as the behaviour of a somewhat backward superstitious people, at least one observer, the politician Conor Cruz O'Brien, remarked how the crowds he saw were overwhelmingly middle class. Sean Murray, a retired Garda sergeant, was initially sceptical but became one of the most vocal believers, He spoke frequently with the media about his own sighting of the statue hovering in mid-air, always maintaining a sensible, thoughtful manner and presenting himself as a very highly credible witness. He mentioned how the people around him seemed to see the same thing at the same time, gasping and stepping backwards at the same moment that he witnessed the miracle. uh,
1: I saw our Lord's hands move up a bit, his left hand. And how, how did his hand go? Can you show me how you his, his hand was there first and then it moved up like that. Yeah. You don't think maybe you, you could have imagined it? No. And the Blessed Virgin's hands were three to four inches apart. They're separated this way now. We went home. We had our tea. We came back that evening, that night. And I'd say about 10 o'clock that night, the hands were back giant together the way they are now today. The facts are not uh, too clear. And then there are people who don't see anything at all.
0: I've spoken with some folks who were there at the time. Many of them were quite young when all this occurred, but still have memories of being part of the crowd, or with everyone carrying candles, walking in procession from the village down to the grotto, and waiting with so much anticipation at the base of the shrine. As the light dropped and twilight descended upon a group of people in such a heightened state of anticipation, well, people had begun to see things. And is it any wonder? Being part of an all-encompassing Catholic culture that believes in miracles, excited by the stories that had set the country aflame, staring for hours in low-light conditions, intense expectation. To my surprise, when I asked witnesses bluntly whether they had seen anything themselves, almost all of them said, maybe, not sure, or don't remember clearly. It seems that many of them remembered seeing something, but were now unsure whether they had really just been swept up in the mania. Reality, this seems to suggest, is malleable. Or at least our perception of it is, coloured by the culture we're in and what our expectations are. This same incident, a statue moving, might have been interpreted as a poltergeist, a demon, or even a demonstration of psychokinesis, depending on where and when it manifested, Because it happened in a country that was still profoundly Catholic, it manifested as a Catholic miracle. Interestingly, not everybody there saw the same thing. For some, it was the statue moving her hand. For others, it was the statue hovering. There were visions of the Pope's face, of an old bald man, various saints, or the statue simply shimmering. To give an idea as to the variety of experiences and attitudes that were prevalent during this time, I'm going to quote from the comment section of an article about the moving statues. The article is called "When Irish Statues Moved and the World Came to Stare. It's from the journal.ie. It's a rundown of the moving statues event, and a large number of people who were actually there have posted their memories of the occasion. Their recollections are alternately moving, enlightening, or hilarious and they show the Irish propensity for both spirituality and sly humour. Here are some of them. I still remember the four girls on the late late, claiming that the Virgin Mary appeared to them with her blonde hair and blue eyes, only for some woman in the audience to say, sure, who ever heard of a woman from that part of the world having blonde hair and blue eyes? I saw her, blue eyes, beautiful from the feeling of her presence, bright light all around her, and on one hand was my deceased father, and on the other my deceased granddad. Didn't see her hair colour as it was covered. The peace and compassion and love I felt wash over me, and through me, gave me strength and belief to never give up. This happened when I was a lapsed Catholic in my darkest times. My mum hired a bus and organised a tour to Ballonspittle. I don't remember the statue, but two women on the bus had an almighty fight over a missing bag of sandwiches. Watching these clips remind us that Father Ted was far closer to reality than we gave it credit for. Those who think it was a scam, it wasn't. It was plain old mass hysteria. I witnessed it. There was pressure to see something amongst the devout Catholics who flocked to the Marian shrines around the country. I was 15 at the time, and it killed the small bit of faith I had stone dead. We had a girl coming to stay with us from Canada, and we were holidaying in the area at the time. We picked her up in Cork Airport, told her nothing about the statue, and visited it on the way home. There were a few people around, but nothing there to say as to why we were there or even why we were there. My mother said she wanted to stop and say a little prayer, and the girl, who was also Catholic, said that she would join us. After about a minute, she said, Oh my god, she's moving. Now, I'm a complete skeptic and agnostic, but those words scared the living daylights out of me. Here was a girl who hadn't a clue about the statue didn't know what village she was in and what was supposed to be going on there. I didn't see it move, but that might be because me and God don't see eye to eye. I normally put this kind of thing down to hysteria and suggestion, but I can't explain why that girl saw it moving. It's clear that there were a range of opinions about the moving statues within Irish society at this time, but what did the church itself think about all this? See, strictly speaking, the Catholic Church accepts the existence of miracles. Certain miracles, at least and they have a division that's dedicated to researching reported miracles and debunking or authenticating them. These days, they seem to like miracles that have taken place quite some time prior to the investigation, comfortably distant enough in time that they're unlikely to be disproven by scientific means. This means that when a miracle is hot, the Church generally don't want to be involved. As Bishop of Cork and Ross Michael Murphy said back in 1985, When an overhyped case occurs, any investigation by the church might be seen as a vindication of the phenomenon. They're still deciding whether the 1981 Bosnian case was legitimate or not, for example. Michael O'Neill, professor of English at Durham University, author of Exploring the Miraculous, and the curator of a website that meticulously catalogues all reported miracles around the world and the church's position on them, says, The Roman Catholic Church has prudently been cautious to approve, disapprove or condemn reported apparitions. In general, studied apparitions are classed as not worthy of belief, not contrary to the faith or worthy of belief. The message of an approved apparition cannot have any content that is contrary to the teachings of the Church. Effectively, this means that if Jesus appears to your neighbour down the street and tells her that we ought to lay off the Hail Marys in opposition to what the Church says, they're likely to take a dim view of her alleged sighting. O'Neill goes on to explain the process of how these decisions are made. As established in the Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563, the local bishop is the first and main authority in apparition cases, which can be defined as instances of private revelation. From the 25th session of the Council of Trent... The Holy Synod ordains that no new miracles are to be acknowledged or new relics recognised unless the said bishop has taken cognizance and approved thereof, who, as soon as he has obtained some certain information in regard to these matters, shall, after having taken the advice of theologians and of other pious men, act therein as he shall judge to be consonant with truth and piety. But if any doubtful or difficult abuse has to be extirpated, or, in fine, if any more grave questions shall arise touching these matters, the bishop, before deciding the controversy, shall await the sentence of the metropolitan and of the bishops of the province in a provincial council, yet so that nothing new or that previously has not been usual in the church shall be resolved on without having first consulted the most holy Roman pontiff. Bishops evaluate evidence of an apparition according to these guidelines. Number one, the facts in the case are free of error. Number two, the person receiving the message is or are psychologically balanced, honest, moral, sincere and respect of church authority. Three, doctrinal errors are not attributed to God, Our Lady or to a saint. Four, theological and spiritual doctrines presented are free of error. Five, money-making is not a motive involved in the events. Six, healthy religious devotion and spiritual fruits result with no evidence of collective hysteria. William Allen, who wrote a thesis on Irish Marian appearances in 2014 at University College Cork, says The Catholic Church, contrary to popular opinion, proceeds most cautiously wherever an apparition of the Virgin Mary is reported. Tensions arise where a body of lay devotees seeks to promote an apparition and a devotional cult around which a particular incarnation of Mary forms. They press the institutional church for a formal investigation. Usually, although the process seems to take much longer in the Irish context, a significant period of time passes before the church awards their approval for the apparition, cult and pilgrimage shrine. In the interim, serious clashes can arise between the lay organisation promoting the apparition and the institutional church. All that for a Class three relic. If you're wondering, Bishop Murphy never gave the Ballinspittle statue his approval. Also, I find it interesting that even in 1545 to 1563, must have been a long council. The church is using language like collective hysteria to describe these kinds of sightings. It's just an observation. All in all, the church's attitude towards the phenomenon was dismissive and often patronising. They saw themselves as the true and only keepers of the Catholic religion, and that the statue visions were simply a bizarre folk mutation of the true faith, nothing more than a distraction indulged in by a credulous and superstitious public. Complicating matters was the fact that for over a century, the devoted supporters of the miracle at the Knock Shrine had been fighting for recognition from the church authorities. When Pope John Paul visited the shrine in 1979, giving his approval, the matter seemed finally put to rest. Now, only six years later, another folk religion phenomena was sweeping the country, and the church were particularly reticent to weigh in on it, having only just recently been mixed up in a similarly compromising scenario. Typically, like many anomalous phenomena, the moving statue sighting proved to be catching. Moving statues were sighted in other parts, firstly just around County Cork but then all around the country, with 28 separate locations reported overall, the most prominent ones being at Mount Meloray, Mitchellstown, and Inchigila. It was a typical boom and bust cycle. By the end of the summer it had blown over. The kind of mainstream interest in Catholic miracles generated by this story would never be repeated again in Ireland. The Church, of course, has in the years since been rocked by the exposure of their many historical wrongdoings, and their influence in Irish society has been waning as the years go by, so it's difficult to imagine a very Catholic-centric event such as this taking off in quite the same way today. However, to those who are out there still looking for miracles... The Virgin Mary is still very much out there, causing further minor sensations. She's had a particularly busy year too. In December 2016, a statue of Mary kept in Tralee, County Kerry, was reported to be able to move, change colour and heal people. In October 2017, another plaster statue of Mary was reported to have cured an 82-year-old limerick man of his back problems, allowing him to walk unaided after his having spent the last 10 years in a wheelchair. And in December 2017 alone, we've already had an image of Mary appear on the wall of a County Limerick house, drawing large crowds, as well as a prediction of a vision of herself at the Knock Shrine, which also drew large numbers, though Mary herself didn't actually show up on that particular occasion. So while Marian apparitions may have left the mainstream, it will be a while yet before her influence entirely wanes in this country. I visited Balance myself during my preparation for this episode. The town itself is tiny, though I was able to find a small cafe to hang out in. Locals were not too keen on talking about the 1985 happenings, with most happy to dismiss them as a harmless bit of nonsense. The grotto itself, however, is still well kept, and rightly so, as it's surely the most famous and most talked about one in the whole country. The roots of the church and the belief system that led to the visions there are still clinging on. Where does that leave my initial presumption of mass hysteria? According to William Allen, at least some who visited Balanspital with an initially sceptical attitude came away believing that there was more to it than they had first believed. Kevin D. O'Connor, journalist with the Irish Independent, arrived expecting to see nothing more than a clear-cut case of mass hysteria. Instead, he wrote that, standing amongst the thousands of weeping emotional worshippers, he was unexpectedly overcome with emotion himself and felt that he had made a connection with Mary through the statue and that it became, in his words, animated. He had to force himself to think rationally as he felt a reporter ought to, though he left the site with no desire to attempt to explain the incident in materialist terms, instead leaving his mind open and happy to have engaged with the event on an emotional, even a spiritual level. Alan utilises the term vernacular religion to describe phenomena such as the moving statues, This term refers to religion as it is lived, as human beings encounter, understand, interpret and practice it. That is to say, expressions of religion that are not necessarily condoned by the official church. Folk religion, if you will, though Alan dislikes that particular term. The various ways in which people take religion into their own hands, interpreting it in ways that make sense to them, whether or not it's condoned by the religious authorities. At the time, a team of psychologists from University College Cork, led by Jure Kurakowski, investigated the incident and decided that the moving statue was simply an illusion caused by the low lighting conditions, though they did allow for the importance of the social and religious circumstances. Many have seen the phenomena as an expression of the various social changes Ireland was going through at the time, heightened levels of unemployment and immigration, as well as the change from an agrarian Catholic society to a more secular, urban and European one. Some have even seen it as a delayed reaction to the sweeping changes of the Second Vatican Council. Perhaps my initial assumptions regarding mass hysteria were a little glib. Psychology, after all, ought not to be a long-distance sport, and there's only so much we can expect to achieve by psychoanalyzing something that happened over 30 years ago. But I do think it's fair to say that what occurred in Ireland in 1985 was due to a very specific combination of social and psychological factors – dependent on the particular relationship we had with our religion at the time. I think the comments and memories people have shared about the event show that it meant different things to different people. Any truly spiritual event, after all, depends not on facts and evidence, but on faith. It's easy to say that people who were already plugged into a Catholic worldview were getting swept up in the balance happenings, and interpret them as a Catholic event it's the sceptical folks who are open-minded enough and intellectually honest enough to actually visit the site and admit that they felt something was going on, who interest me the most. Their experiences, more than anyone's, indicate to me that there are psychological and social forces out there that are still ill understood, and though they may manifest themselves differently to different people, are still very real. That's it for tonight's episode. When your glass is drained, I'll see you out and be sure that you take a moment on the way home to pay your respects to herself at the little shrine down the road. And keep your eyes peeled, you never know what you might see. Thanks for listening. Well, I certainly hope you enjoyed that. It is always interesting to go back and listen to episodes of my old show, Uh, It certainly was a nice time when I was able to do fully scripted episodes, they're really good fun to go back and listen to. However, truth be told, in those days I was getting maybe one episode done a month. So what I do now is I guess something of a compromise in terms of, I try and put the same amount of effort into my research, my reading, uh, but I tend to record uh, speaking off the cuff really, rather than doing them entirely scripted. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do things in that more documentary style But really, it is a massive time suck and I would never be able to produce the number of episodes that I can do now. Anyway, if you liked what you heard tonight, I massively encourage you to please go online wherever it is that you find your podcast and have a look over our back catalogue. We have put out a very large amount of episodes this year. We're very proud of them. And I might, from time to time, dip into the vaults once again. There's a few more episodes from those days that I am very proud of that I might put out on this stream, being as they currently exist in limbo and don't have any other online home. While you're there, please, please, please do put some stars and some reviews onto our show, wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. It really helps a lot, gets our name out there. But the number one thing you can do is to share episodes with anyone who you think might be interested. That's really huge. We also love to hear from people. Um, If you'd like to chat with us, the best way is on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland. As you can guess, the name is in reference to our old show. I haven't changed it. I quite like it. I feel like it speaks to something of what we do. As you're going through our old episodes, you'll notice that we're no longer focusing just on stuff that is directly uh, connected to Ireland, although we do enjoy when there is an Irish connection in any weird stories at all. Anyway, that's everything for now. So thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, and we will catch you next time. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil.
1: And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or
0: Sasquatch by bringing in a body.